Hello, and welcome to the Time to Zero In podcast, produced by Break, the road safety charity, and hosted by me, Joshua Harris. This is the series where we speak with experts from across the safe and healthy mobility community to zero in on the issues, trends, and innovations that can help us move towards a world where no one is killed or seriously injured on the roads, and where we can all be confident to move about in a safe and healthy way every day. A vision for the future known as Vision Zero. Today, we'll be zeroing in on roads enforcement with Dr. Helen Wells. This episode is kindly sponsored by our friends at Litix, the leading provider of video telematics and fleet management solutions. At the end of today's show, I'll be speaking with Damien Penny, European Vice President, to zero in on why road safety is so important to their organisation. Our guest for today's episode is Dr. Helen Wells, a specialist on roads policing. Helen is a senior lecturer in criminology at Keele University and has spent her career working with police forces across the country to develop new approaches to improve road safety. In this episode, Helen and I will be discussing the current status of roads enforcement in the UK, exploring issues such as whether or not a visible police presence makes a difference to driver behaviour and the technological developments and projects which are the vanguard of roads policing. Ahead of my chat with Helen, however, let's take time for a quick primer on Vision Zero. Vision Zero stems from the belief that every road death or serious injury is preventable. A Vision Zero approach to road safety is built upon two basic facts about people. One, we make mistakes and will make mistakes when on the roads. And two, we are vulnerable to being killed or seriously injured if we're in a crash. Vision Zero recognises these facts and designs them out of the equation. Put simply, this means that the whole road environment, vehicles, infrastructure, speed limits, post-crash care and road users work together as one system to minimise the chance of a crash, or, if a crash does take place, to prevent death or serious injury from occurring. At break, we believe that every road death and serious injury is a preventable tragedy. So let's take time to zero in on the solutions that can make our vision of zero a reality. So our guest for today is Dr. Helen Wells, an expert on roads enforcement. Hi, Helen. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Josh. Thanks. So our listeners will have heard uh, my brief introduction to you, but can you tell us a a little bit more about yourself and perhaps what motivated you to pursue your career in in criminology and roads enforcement? Certainly. Yeah. Um, So as you say, uh, I'm a criminologist um, and that's a discipline that really does draw on lots of other disciplines. So it's not has got its own particular approach, but it draws on psychology, it draws on sociology, on law and lots of different different disciplines, which I think is absolutely essential for when you're studying a topic like, like roads policing. My own particular interest came, I think, from my, my first job, first post degree, which was in a magistrate's court. And it happened to be at the time when speed cameras were a new thing on British roads. And I had an admin position and I spent most of my day talking to people who were very unhappy that they were in trouble with the law, that they were having to ring the magistrate's court and argue stuff because they were law-abiding people. And because they were law-abiding people who got in trouble with the law, they were absolutely convinced there was something wrong with the law because it shouldn't be catching people like them. And that really, really intrigued me, that idea that these were people who'd never had any contact with the law before as offenders anyway, and saw themselves as people who paid the police to do stuff to other people. And I was lucky enough to get uh, funding to do a PhD on that topic. And it's kind of it's kind of gone from there, really. 
Well, that's really interesting. And no doubt bits we'll pick up later on with regards public attitudes and also also speed cameras. I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about those. Now, before we properly kick off with our topic today, I do like to start each of these interviews with, with a quick fire question. So can you tell us how did you make your last journey and perhaps what one thing could have made it better for you from a safe and healthy mobility perspective? So my last journey was yesterday evening by car and essentially it was unnecessary because uh, we took the family to a park to chuck a frisbee around. So obviously chucking a frisbee around in a park is a very noble pursuit, but I don't suppose we really had to drive or in an ideal world, we would not have had to drive to find somewhere to do that. It was also a journey I took as a passenger because I like to let my husband drive. I think he's a more confident driver than me. I'm very cautious. And I suppose the interesting question in there is whether actually we would like our roads filled with confident drivers or whether they're better off filled with cautious drivers, which I think is, is an interesting one. But nonetheless, I let him drive because if I drive, he gives me advice from the passenger seat and uh, that's not good for anyone. <laughs> I'm sure lots of people can relate to that story. So today, the main topic is around roads enforcement and, and roads policing. So to introduce that to the listeners, can you say what we actually mean by this, by, by roads enforcement, perhaps in reference to what it looks like in the UK at present? Yeah, I think roads policing is an interesting term often used to mean the activities of the police, as we would recognise them. I think there's certainly an argument that it should be wider than that, that actually anyone who has any responsibility for compliance out on the road network is involved in policing. So whether that's Highways England, whether that's the DVLA, the DVSA, and increasingly, I think that's that's you and I as drivers as well, who do have a role perhaps in purchasing dash cams and actually helping the police by supplying evidence of stuff that we think shouldn't really be happening. If we focus though on the, the traditional idea of the police and police forces, then policing looks different depending on which force you're, you're looking at. In some areas, there are dedicated roads policing units with highly trained officers who focus exclusively on road traffic law and on what we say is denying criminals the use of the road. In other areas, it's more of a everybody's job and there's no specific roads policing expertise and everyone's expected to sort of pick that up a little bit. I think the, the other interesting angle that we've touched on already is this idea that there's a whole sort of network of automated enforcement out there as well, primarily familiar to listeners through speed cameras. But I think that's something that's that's probably only going to increase in, in, in future as, as automation is seen to guarantee a lot of things that perhaps human officers can't do or can't do as as regularly or as as automatically, as cheaply. That's really interesting. We're definitely going to talk about technology later on, but I'm, I'm really interested in the policing, traditional policing, I guess, as, as some people may perceive it, point of view. What value is there in, in having a, a visible police presence out on the road? Is, is there data that tells us that it does deter people from offending or does it not really work? I think it's a very hard thing to prove. Some really good research by people like the Parliamentary Advisory Council for Transport Safety recently have looked at exactly that issue because I think part of the reason that roads policing has perhaps declined in importance in police forces recently is because it's really struggled to evidence its effectiveness. And at a time when there is lots of uh, financial cuts, you need to be able to prove your worth, otherwise you're going to suffer those cuts. And I think proving what the value of roads policing is, is something that's become really high priority in recent months and years. I think it's, it's obvious that there is some deterrent benefit to having roads policing officers out there that 
recent surveys, I think by the AA, said that a lot of drivers just don't think there's a chance of getting caught these days. And that has to have an effect, I think, on people's choices of behaviour and the occasions on which they just think, well, what are the consequences going to be? I probably won't crash and no one's going to catch me. So I think we, we intuitively know that it makes sense to have somebody out there enforcing the law. I think we know in this context particularly that because a lot of people don't subscribe to traffic law because they inherently think it's wrong, like burglary or murder or anything like that, that we do need those kind of that kind of policing to keep us on the straight and narrow. We don't do that because we were taught from childhood that it's inherently wrong or one of the Ten Commandments or something. So we do need roads policing. And I think roads policing needs a way to be able to demonstrate its value, as I say, to protect itself from, from cuts. You talked about one of the, the main challenges, as I see it, for, for roads policing, which is around the public compliance point and attitudes towards what is essentially breaking the law, but perhaps is not perceived as such. Can you expand on that a little bit and, and what challenges that poses for officers out on the road? I think it poses huge challenges at all levels, really. I think it poses challenges for officers who may find that they're having to justify their activity in a way that they never have to do for lots of other offences. So you never have to justify why violent crime is an appropriate target for policing. But roads policing is always in a position of having to argue for why it's legitimate. And I think that's partly because of the type of people that it problematises. These are people who, as I alluded to at the start, think that they pay their taxes to, to pay the police to look at other people the real criminals. And there's a real sense, I think, amongst a lot of people that it just won't be them. It's not them. It's not their behaviour that's that's dangerous. They're better than average drivers. And why aren't the police, as the phrase goes, out catching burglars? I think that's changing and I'll come back to that. But I think roads policing also then has to justify itself within a force structure often. Um, we just talked about how it proves its worth. And then you come to things like uh, the level of police and crime commissioners. And that's a really interesting position for a police and crime commissioner where you're talking to your electorate as a potential victim and a potential offender. And my own research with police and crime commissioners back 2012 when they were first invented did suggest there was a hesitancy about tackling this particular problem. If you're going to have a strong manifesto around crime, it's fine to do that around drugs, alcohol, violent crime, etc. But when you start to talk about how you're going to tackle road-based offenders, you start to put those those electorate in quite an awkward position and nobody's really quite sure what, how to play that one. When I say that I think things are changing, I think evidence from things like the popularity of dash cams, the popularity of community speed watch is starting to suggest that people are reinventing themselves as actually thinking, actually, no, it's, it's good drivers and the police against the rest of them, against the minority of, of poor drivers, rather than it's this war on the motorist that I think we had probably um, pursued by the tabloid media as much as anything, um, maybe a decade ago. And you've touched upon their police and crime commissioners. Are you able to perhaps just describe how police crime commissioners work and their interaction with the police? They're a way of trying to increase democratic accountability of the police. Um, they replace what were perceived to be quite ineffectual police authorities. And their idea is that the idea is that they have um, some control over the way in which policing is done in a police force area. So there's one for each police force area. Now, there's quite a fine line between um, the sort of strategic um, and accountability that oversight that police and crime commissioners give and the operational decision making, which still rests with the chief constable. So the PCC should be in a position to recommend sort of high level priorities, um, have strategies for dealing with four particular crimes, but it's actually down to the chief constable to decide how to operationalise those strategies. I think 
from when I did my research, as I say, back in 2012, police and crime commissions are getting more confident around this issue. And we can see that each time there is an election, more and more of them are including roads policing or road safety, more specifically in their in their manifestos and in their in their uh, strategies when they're elected. We're certainly finding that at break. A little plug here for our National Road Victim Service, which is, of course, the service there to support anyone been bereaved in a, a road crash. And certainly the engagement with PCCs, uh, the fragmentation can be challenging, but I think we're definitely finding there is more of an emphasis now on, on road safety and obviously the important support for victims as well. The theme of this series is around Vision Zero and the safe systems approach to safe and healthy mobility. I guess an interesting point around this is how much should we rely upon, in your view, the uh, design-led approach in designing our roads and infrastructure to dissuade uh, illegal behaviour and how much should be put on, I guess, the road user themselves and where do we draw that line? Where should the priority be? Firstly, the Vision Zero. I'm, I'm so pleased to see that it's it's becoming much more regular terminology in these debates because I think although strategies and targets do focus the mind, I've always been uncomfortable with the idea that if we achieve a 40% reduction in something, that's great. And we pat ourselves on our backs that only however many thousand people died, which is always, I think, sat quite uncomfortably with a lot of people. We may never achieve zero, but if we don't aim for it, we certainly won't ever get it. In terms of the systems approach, I think policing obviously is an important important part of that. We know we can't rely on drivers to, to self-regulate. Things like self-enforcing roads are obviously an ideal, I think. If we can design stuff in that achieves that without having to actually punish people, that would be that would be great. But I think a lot of laws as well, things like mobile phone use, for example, there's just not really a way of enforcing those using technology um, or using design that could redesign those out unless we turn our cars into sort of Faraday cages where you can't use your mobile phone. Um, I think realistically, the idea of a human having what we would call in criminology some sort of capable guardianship over the roads it is essential because so many of these offences we're talking about are subjective. They're not black and white. Speeding, obviously, is an example of one that, that there is a limit and technology can enforce whether something falls one side of it or the other. But so many other offences are much more subjective. So you really need policing and you need, I think, human policing in order to enforce a lot of those, a lot of those laws. One of the things we've we've grappled with a break or, or discussed perhaps is around the clarity on, on the speeding law and the 10% plus two, which police officers are potentially able to provide on the speeding, which means people going 10% plus two miles an hour over the speed limit are perhaps not caught and not penalised. And we think that can dilute um, the impact of the law. You're, you're saying that you can break the law just a little bit. What are your views on that? I think it's really interesting. The, the thing that really interested me, I think, firstly, and interested me way back when I was first looking at this, was that this is this is common knowledge, this idea of 10% plus two, um, that people who are inclined to break the speed limit have done their research. They have found out what they can get away with. And I think that's really clear evidence that they don't agree with the limit for the limit's sake. They see it as a bit of a game and they know their rights and they know that if they're going at 10% plus two, that becomes the default limit. Um, but that that common knowledgeness, that's not a word, of that idea, I think tells us a lot about how drivers are approaching road traffic law. They've done what they can to find out what they can and can't get done for. Now, I think the danger with strictly enforcing the limit to the letter is there is twofold. One is the public perception there, that idea that it's not fair, 
you're tightening up, you're clumping down on people who might have done it by mistake, etc., which which could actually be more costly in terms of um, the legitimacy of roads policing than it actually is a benefit. The other concern, I think, is that idea that if you were going at 30, if we made the limit 30 and strictly enforced, then we would have solved the speeding problem or 40 or 50. But if it was centralised on that number. And I think the danger there is that it teaches drivers to drive by numbers. And this idea that if I'm going at 30 and anyone who's heard me speak will have heard me say this many times. But if I'm going at 30, I can't possibly kill somebody because it's the limit. So long as I am going at 30, no matter how many people I've got on the bonnet, I can't hurt anybody because I'm doing the law. And that, I think, distract, detracts from the idea of why why am I going at the speed I am? Again, that subjectivity. Choose the appropriate speed for the circumstances, which may be 30. It may be 20. Don't just go for 30 on the grounds that they can't do me if I'm 29. No, I think that's a really interesting, really interesting tension there, isn't it? That you want people to to drive what they feel is the appropriate speed, but then you need a limit to to stop those people who perhaps will will disregard that. So it's certainly a a vexing issue which we've been dealing with for for a while here. We've kind of touched upon technology um, now, I guess, because we've been talking about speed and and compliance. Um, there's a few things I'd like to talk about: speed cameras, of course, but also perhaps some new vehicle technology that's that's coming down the line. Um, intelligent speed assistance technologies, which could perhaps limit certain vehicles who have that technology to the speed limit through a combination of GPS and, and technology in the vehicle. Do you see that as playing uh, perhaps an important role in in the future of? Uh, compliance on the roads and uh, there's a tension there as well with some vehicles will have this technology whilst others won't and that might create some sort of conflict what are your thoughts are around that issue i think that's a really good point i think centralizing on the limit becomes even more of a problem when vehicles simply stick to that limit now one would hope if your vehicle takes responsibility for speed you are freed up to then make other sensible decisions about other aspects of your driving and that you will pay attention to whether the car is correct to let you drive at 30. I don't know that that's necessarily how that's going to play out and whether the drivers will see that that's just another thing that they haven't got to worry about. So there's more of their mental capacity, their cognitive capacity to do other things, which I think would be would be dangerous um, because that can include things like having a quick check of the mobile, that sort of stuff. So I think things like speed limiters have potential i think in order to be acceptable and some would argue in order to be safe they need to be capable of being overridden and i think you will probably see them overridden in quite a lot of circumstances where someone decides that they know better than the vehicle in terms of other kinds of vehicle design i think my problem i suppose with them is is that we have to reinvent lots of subjective driving behaviors into dichotomies into black and white, into safe, dangerous. And I don't think that with many, it, driving is a very situated thing. It's very, it's constantly adapting, constantly changing. And to then label one speed or um, one amount of sharp steering as safe and one not, I think it can be quite problematic. And it encourages us to reduce complex problems down to a simple kind of traffic light methods that actually don't capture the complex reality of driving. And that drivers become obviously then reliant on them to know what's safe. Um, I'm reminded of some work I did years ago with black boxes for young drivers, which obviously were linked to their insurance, etc. And the black boxes sent information back to the parent, 
who would then supposedly sit down with the young person in the evening and say, OK, I see you've got three reds. What were you up to? And the young people in one of the focus groups referred to it as the kill the squirrel box um, because they'd learned that if there was a small object, let's say a squirrel, in the road, they were better off ploughing through it than they were steering dramatically or braking suddenly because that would score them a red and they would have to then justify that. If they simply ploughed through it, it would not register. And I think that kind of understanding the limitations and the opportunities, as it were, of, of things like technology are, are quite quite dangerous. Uh, it, squirrel is one thing, but you can extrapolate that, I think, to see how drivers will learn to play those kind of limits and those restrictors to get what they ultimately want, which is probably fast driving and a quite exciting experience. That's a really interesting answer and a really interesting area. And I'm going to do a shameless plug for another podcast in this series we've got with um, Dr. Nick Rees around connected and autonomous vehicles in which we talked about some of those challenges with human driving and with technology being introduced and how those will play out on the roads. So I, I do encourage people to, to listen to that. We also talked about speed cameras um, a little bit earlier as I guess one part of technology which people are quite used to on our roads. They've been around for, for a long while, but perhaps there is still maybe some antagonism towards them. I, I'm not sure. I'll be interested in your response. Firstly, how, how widespread are they on our roads in, in the UK and, and how effective are they at deterring dangerous behaviour, dangerous driving? I think in terms of their, um, their widespreadness, again, probably not a word, um, I think drivers perhaps know which ones are working and which aren't. I think obviously you, you see uh, average speed cameras more frequently now on motorways, which they seem to be slightly less unpopular. I think there was a heyday, as it were, of, of speed cameras back when I was doing my, my research. I won't plug the book, but there's a book. Um, and I think they possibly the decline in perhaps tabloid objections to them has mirrored the decline in their use in some cases. Um, there's some fairly well publicised information about how many of them are actually actually working. I think average speed cameras are possibly more popular because they seem to give drivers the chance to make an error and correct it. Whereas with static speed cameras, the kind that flash you as you go as you go past them, there's a perception I think from from my research that they're not really very fair. That they don't give drivers the chance to make an error, to have misread the speed limit and then suddenly realise it, and that lots of people with 40-year unblemished driving histories are suddenly thrown into conflict with the law by one little error, because it's always one little error. Everyone was always caught the first time they did it. They were never just lucky to get away with it until that point. Um, in terms of effectiveness, I think the, the research has been, um, there's been a lot of research commissioned looking at exactly that, possibly because they, whilst they work supremely effectively in the lab, once you let them loose on the general public, it's another story. And, you know, they are that you throw them into society and society won't necessarily let them behave like they're in a lab. So um, in terms of static cameras, we know that they are effective within a certain sort of halo of where they operate. But we also know and can see that drivers speed up and slow down for them. Um, so if we wanting to reduce speeds at a very specific location, I think they, they've demonstrated their effectiveness. But drivers do do game the system. They, in some research I've done, drivers are quite knowledgeable about the capabilities of which camera, which way it faces, whether it's actually going to be working or not. Um, and as you said, the 10% plus two rule as well. So I think, as with all technology, we never really understand its effectiveness or can sort of judge its contribution to road safety until we've let the British public get hold of it. And we understand a lot about the psyche of the British public as well as about the technology when we bring the two of them together. 
And when it comes to the impact and value of more random enforcement on the roads, I'm thinking speed cameras are always very well signed, at least the static ones. And also there's, I know, a debate around random alcohol and, and drug testing and perhaps the impact that could have as a deterrent. Again, what do you think the impact could be? And, and is it a valuable thing for us to consider introducing? It's a good point. And I think the fact that speed cameras are bright yellow says a lot about the public and what it accepts and what it sees as the the rationale behind their use and how acceptable they see them as being. I think in recent years, the public, to generalise, probably beyond where we should, but the public, the motoring public does seem to realise that their chances of getting caught may have declined. Again, in my research, I see a lot of people sort of complaining about the lack of human enforcement on the roads and sort of having a nostalgia for the good old days when a traffic cop could pull you over and tell you your back light was out. I think that idea of never quite knowing if and where you might get caught is a powerful deterrent. And if people believe that all the places where it's quote unquote safe to speed are are all the places where there aren't speed cameras, then they will they will drive accordingly and they will see that a dangerous place is a date is a place with a speed camera. So having that idea that actually speed enforcement could take place anywhere is powerful. I'd prefer it if people got the logic of why speed cameras and why speed limits exist uh, and drove accordingly. You want to bring the public on the on the journey with you, but it's been a, a challenge and whether or not that's actually going to happen, I guess, is a question still to be answered. So when thinking about technology on roads, we do see, I guess, a prevalence these days with more soft behavioural technologies on the roads intended to uh, improve someone's behaviour in some way. I'm thinking, for example, signs which flash speeds up at people or which flash um, a smiley face or an unsmiling face if someone is going over the speed limit. Again, how, how effective are those on the roads? Is that something we should be looking to perhaps roll out more across the UK? I think they're a popular alternative. I'm not going to suggest that necessarily the customer in this case knows what's good for them or should be given what's good for them. I think their popularity partly lies in the fact they don't actually do you for anything. They're just a warning. And I think that you know, research has shown that they are effective for a certain amount of time. They do have an effect on people who, who see them, particularly if it's your own speed. I think that's particularly sort of impactful. It's saying it's you, not just oh, the speed limit around here is X. It's saying, look, you. I don't know the extent to which that effect has much longevity once people realise that it just flashes and that's the end of that. I like the idea of trying to treat drivers as educatable human beings and not simply to sort of just punish them all the time, to give them a chance, I guess, to to regulate their own behaviour because, you know, I'm an optimist. I'd like to believe that people can be persuaded. So I think, yeah, that. They can be popular. I think, again, my, my concern with a smiley face at someone doing 29 is that 29 isn't always safe. So you don't want to give people a double thumbs up and a big smiley face for doing something that actually in that context wasn't the best choice. But of course, the, the radar is only whatever it is, is only designed to spot what speed you're doing. And speed is only one component of driving, driving safely. That takes us back to the the, the nuances around driving and, and appropriate speed. And perhaps there isn't a, a black and white answer for everything around this. I think when it comes to technology these days, data is, plays a huge role in everything. And I think you're involved in a project called Project Galileo, which is looking to use data with regards improvement in, in roads policing. Could you talk a, a little bit about that and what it's looking to achieve? Yeah, sure. Um, Galileo is a programme funded by by Highways England primarily, looking at ways in which data and specifically the blending of data can help us to police the roads more intelligently and more more effectively. So what that programme is looking at is firstly understanding what data exists out there. And that's not just police data, but data from policing partners and what actually bringing that data together can help us to understand in terms of drivers that might specifically want targeting 
offences that want targeting and, of course, locations that, that we want to be particularly, particularly looking at. So rather than having all that data exist in isolation, trying to understand what insights we can develop from, from bringing all that together. So you mentioned other organisations which the Galileo project is working in in partner with. I'm interested in to know what other partnerships, you know, the police and others do work with and perhaps the value in those community-led initiatives and the effect they, they perhaps have on, on the roads. I think they're really good evidence that actually the public is not simply viewing itself as in a war with the police as motorists, but actually the public does want to get out and do something to, I would say, co-produce road safety with the police and with other agencies. So um, Community Speedwatch is one of those examples, I think, of the public getting out and doing something about it. And I think it's something that actually the police and other partners should be really confident in pointing to when they get challenged about the legitimacy of what they do, to say, no, look, we have examples of people doing stuff, putting themselves out there because they want to improve the safety of the roads. And Dashcam, I think, is another one along those lines where people, um, because, of course, all drivers think they're going to capture other people doing bad stuff. But that idea of the public, the road-using public themselves becoming the capable guardians for the road, not leaving it all to other agencies like the police, but actually wanting to get involved and saying, hey, this is a legitimate thing. And we are so legitimate, we will buy a camera and we will upload footage that you can use as evidence because we want these people stopped. And I think making the most of those kind of developments actually is, is one thing that roads policing can do to increase sort of the way in which it can talk confidently about what it does. So it's not all com- always coming out on the back foot sort of and apologising for what it does or, or whatever that might be, but really saying, actually, no, we're confident we're bringing the public with us. And we talked earlier a little bit about the fact that you can have speed cameras perhaps not not so signposted. And I guess dash cams and increasing use of those on the roads can perhaps have a, a similar effect in that people will think, oh, I, I shouldn't perhaps go over the speed limit here because there may be someone past me with a, with a dash cam. Yeah, and ideally, with from criminological literature, we wouldn't actually need the dash cams. We just need everyone to have a sticker on the bumper saying they've got one. Um, and then that would deter everything. But yes, just that idea that you, you just you're just not sure. And if for those people who are not convinced by the the normative logic behind the law, so the reason we do this is because it's safe. The reason we don't do that is because it's unsafe. For the people who don't want to absorb that or to internalise that, then actually external control is important. And I think things like dash cams, community speed watch, speed cameras and roads policing are really important to securing that. So there's, there's always going to be a place for those, I think. And I, I know that UK government is looking into dash cams and working with forces more to perhaps have a centralised national dash cam uh, structure. And I know that's part, I think, of the discussions around the roads policing review as well, which is a, a big piece of work that the government is introducing or, or running at present. Can you perhaps speak a little bit about what they're they're looking to achieve with that and what you hope to perhaps come out of the review? Yeah, I think well, dash cams was, a, I think, recommendation nine in the HMIC FRS, the Inspectorate Report on Roads Policing. And I was really pleased to see it to see it in there because I think it's really um, a window of opportunity that forces need to make the most of. And at the moment, as you say, it's, it's not particularly coordinated nationally. Obviously, roads policing, road users travel by definition, and they don't really care which force they were in when they saw something that made them feel unsafe. So I think there is there is an imperative to create some sort of centralised system that actually means drivers can upload stuff from wherever it wherever it happened without having to work out what force they were in. I think the f- forces originally were a little worried they might get overwhelmed by it, but I think the genie is out of the bottle on that one. And if people want to report crimes to you, um, you've got a duty really to be able to to accept them and to process them. In terms of the the other national developments, you've got the 
Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary Fire and Rescue Service thematic report on roads policing, uh, which came out a few weeks ago, and also the, the DFT review, the Home Office and DFT review, as you mentioned. And I think both of those things are evidence of this issue going back up the policy radar and really pleased to see that. It's an area I've been working in for about 20 years and we've never quite felt like we've had such a moment in time. In fact, for many years, the, a bit of a niche subject, I think I was le left to get on with because I wasn't doing any harm. Um, but it's only in recent years and months, actually, particularly in the recent months, that feels like actually it's, it's back on the radar where it should be. Now, whether that's partly driven, no pun intended, by the plateauing of killed and seriously injured statistics, um, I suspect that that's part of the motivation. But, you know, for whatever reason, it's back on the policy radar. And I think that's great. And I think work like the DFT and Home Office Review and the inspection report are just going to see it pushed back further onto, onto the radar where it should be in the next few months and years. I think for break the combination of DFT and Home Office working together. So road policy law and, and road enforcement at the same time is really positive development. We're certainly keen to see to see what comes out of that. I know there's been concern over recent decades of perhaps a lack of funding for the police and hopefully the, the connections of the two will be able to, I guess, find some solutions, potential solutions to that. So we do have a, a stronger enforcement presence on the road. Now, for a final probably quite difficult question thinking about sort of roads enforcement and roads policing what single policy change or, or piece of um, investment in infrastructure or, or communications do you think would make the biggest positive impact to, to compliance on our roads if i take the word compliance i think i'll start with that one and i would want to make sure that the law that police are enforcing is fit for purpose first because there's no point getting 100% compliance with a law that doesn't really tick the boxes in terms of making people drive safely. So for that example, and again, anyone who's heard me speak wouldn't be surprised, I'd use the example of hands-free mobile phone use. There's no point in us getting 100% compliance with the mobile phone law as it stands and expecting that to solve the problem of distracted driving. Hands-free use is as distracting as hands-held use. One's legal, one isn't. What we mustn't do is simply by focusing on enforcing the law as it is, move people from one illegal dangerous behaviour to illegal dangerous behaviour. Um, I've called it before, you know, choosing a legal rather than illegal way to die. There's no point in doing that. So I would want to make sure that the law that we, that is the framework by which the roads policing officers operate is the right law, that it's fit for purpose. Because if we don't do that, no matter how well they enforce the law, it ain't going to get us to where we want to be. In terms of other developments, I think I would want to capitalise on what I think is a shift in public opinion. I think there's always been support for roads policing. There's always been support for speed cameras. Um, but a few, sometimes quite a lot, of loud voices have been allowed to dominate the narrative around that. And that things like Speedwatch and dash cams are a great opportunity to say, no, hang on, we have got the public with us. Let's proceed with confidence. So I think I'd want to shift what we call the social norm around, around this type of subject to say that actually it's, it's police and public against a minority, not police versus public. So things like rather than just publicising the amount of people you catch, publicise the amount of people you didn't have to have to bother with because they were entirely compliant. So because policing often measures itself on how many people it caught, it catches or how many penalties it dishes out. There's a tendency to say we caught 3000 speeders in this operation. But actually, I think that gives the slightly wrong message. And we should be saying, yes, we caught 3000 speeders. But thanks to the Many, many more people we didn't have to have to bother 
dealing with because I think that just changes that social norm and makes it more socially unacceptable so pushing it more towards the way we, we like to talk about drink driving as having been made socially unacceptable so I think that's a sort of rather nebulous kind of aim it's not a particular piece of tech but it's a it's a change in that narrative I think that I think should underpin all, all that we do I think we'd certainly endorse both of those. And, and on your first point at break, we often say a law is only as strong as its enforcement, but it seems to be the case that the enforcement is only as strong as the law itself as well. So perhaps we need to lift both those up to make sure we're, you know, do have safe roads for everyone. Thank you, Helen. Really appreciate your time today. You're welcome. So I'm joined today by Damien Penny, European Vice President at Lytics. Thanks for joining me, Damien. Well, thanks for having me. I'd like to start each of these interviews with a quick fire question, as you would have heard. So can you tell me how you made your most recent journey and what could have made it better from a safe and healthy mobility perspective? I think that was yesterday. To tell you a little bit of a story, I was having some work done in the house and it was very noisy. And uh, both of my children, who are uh, pretty old now, 20, 22, decided to take me out for breakfast. And uh, usually we walked down to this cafe, but yesterday also it was raining hard. So we took the car. They drove me down, which was an experience. And I ended up paying, obviously. Um, it's usually it's usually a walk and we should have walked down. But because of the weather yesterday, we decided to uh, uh, take the car. Um, so how could we have done it uh, more safely? Well, probably walking would be good. But I, I've got to say, I was quite impressed with uh, how my son drove us down there. So and I gave him plenty of compliments because he drove really well. Very glad to hear it. So as I said, you're European Vice President at Lytics. So can you tell our listeners why are Lytics so passionate about road safety? Well, Lytics have been around for over 20 years. And originally our founder was involved in a a road incident and it was at that point thought how do I prevent these incidents from happening again in the future and ever since then the focus of our business has been all around safety and, and more focused on the safety of the driver um, and making sure we get them home safe at night in fact our, our, our dream and it's very similar to the the brakes uh, vision zero is is that no commercial driver will ever be the cause of a collision and so everything we do is focused around the driver and focused around the safety of the driver can you give uh, me and our listeners uh, a quick overview of, of the kind of work that lytics do yeah sure so i'll give you an answer in two parts really i mean basically what we do uh, we take video and data that comes from a vehicle to help improve safety, the efficiency of the vehicle and productivity of the company. We work with all types of fleets. We've got about 4,000 fleets and we work with them and we collect a lot of data from them to help them improve the solutions so they could be more effective uh, and more accurate. But fundamentally, what we do is all about safety and it's all about saving lives. And we've been doing this for 20 years. And the core of our business is about how do we get the drivers back home safe every evening and everything we do is focused around that well that's fantastic and we're thrilled to be working with you because that chimes so perfectly well with the the values of us uh, here at break how do you think uh, lytics products can can help us enforce the rules of the road yeah i was i was literally listening to the podcast uh, earlier on on the road policing side of things and one thing that really struck me was the way in which we can look to try and use the wider public in helping to police some of these issues that we see out there and and also to invert the concept that we're not about catching people who are doing things wrong. We're trying to um, highlight all the good things that everybody's doing. 
And that's really what we try and do when we're working with fleets and we're we're talking about a video, perhaps another data in and around a driver. We're not trying to catch drivers do things wrong. We're trying to help them be safe. And we're trying to um, support the majority of drivers that are doing a great job out there. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Damon. Can you tell our listeners perhaps where they can find more information about Lytics? Well, the obvious place to go to is uh, lytics.com. And what you'll find there is a wealth of information, uh, lots of uh, white papers, etc., about safety. And, and you can also read so many articles from companies and how you can learn from them and what they did to, to make their fleet safest. Thank you very much for your time today, Damien, and for your support of Break in this podcast. No, thank you, Josh.